This week, the moon is our nearest neighbour, but its origins are still mysterious. I hope the audience will also learn from this and know a bit more about the beautiful moon that we have just over our head. And the unsung hero of the materials world. I always get the sense that people outside chemistry actually don't know a great deal about these sorts of materials. And they really are very versatile and showing a lot of promise. Plus the poet who's been hanging out with solar physicists for his new book. This is The Nature Podcast for April the 9th, 2015. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Charlotte Stoddart. It shouldn't come as a surprise to Switched On podcast listeners that the moon isn't made of cheese. But what is it made from and how was it formed? Since the 1970s, the leading explanation has involved an object the size of Mars smashing into the early Earth, with the object leaving behind enough material for a moon. Researchers call this the giant impactor theory. But there's a problem. The Moon has almost exactly the same isotopic composition as the Earth. That basically means its chemical profile is almost identical, which seems like a bit of a coincidence. Here's astronomer Robin Canup discussing the giant impactor theory with us in 2013. That could produce a Moon with the same composition as the Earth if the impactor had had the identical composition to the Earth. That is an extremely improbable event. Now, researchers at the Technion Institute in Israel believe they may have a solution, as Adam Levy found out. First, a quick Moon Theories 101 from the author, Haggai Peretz. There were several models, uh, starting from the 19th century. It was suggested that the Moon was formed through a fission process. Basically, the proto-Earth, the early Earth, rotated very, very fast, and some of its material uh, was actually kind of ejected and later coagulated to form the moon. Later models suggested issues like suggested models like uh, both the Earth and the moon kind of formed from the same dust, clump of dust, and then together each one of them actually accreted more and more material and they grew together. And the final one, or the kind of most recent from the late 70s to early 80s, is the giant impact hypothesis. Basically, you suggested that another kind of small planet collided with the proto-Earth, ejected a lot of material to an orbit around the Earth, and this material later on clumped and kind of formed the Moon after coagulation of all this material. And each one of these models has its own predictions about the type of orbits that you have for the Moon, about what kind of orbits, their ellipticity. So many of the predictions of this giant impact hypothesis were really consistent with what we see today about the orbit of the Moon, Um, and even the basic amount of iron that you have. In the giant impactor theory, the moon is primarily made of a mixture between the early Earth and the impactor, or is it just made from one of the two? Basically, what we see from simulations of impacts on the Earth is that most of the material that is ejected and later becomes the moon comes from the impactor. So if the impactor had a different composition from the Earth, you should expect the Moon to have a different composition from the Earth. We see that other objects in the solar systems have different composition from the Earth, so we should expect the Moon also to have very different composition, which is exactly opposite to what we see. They are almost identical. That's the main problem, and this is kind of one of the major challenges for this really giant, really beautiful giant impact hypothesis because it works perfectly to explain all of the other uh, properties of the Earth's moon system. And what have you done to investigate this major challenge with the giant impactor hypothesis? What we did is we checked it through simulation. 
we try to check whether the impactor's composition is more similar to that of those plants that they impact compared with other plants in the solar system that never impact. And what we found is that many of these impactors on the planet have very similar composition to that of the plants they impact, as similar as what we measure between the Earth and the Moon. So in some sense, you can say that the Earth and the Moon are not twins and kind of born from the same uh, planet, but in some sense, they are sisters in the sense that they grew up in the same family, grew up in the same environment. This happens a lot in, in these kind of simulations, which suggests this is general kind of process. How confident are you that your simulations do represent the physical conditions in which our solar system came together? That's always a good question. In a sense, in science, I mean, we are never sure, exactly, especially in those cases we have very complex physics with many, many processes. And it's difficult to actually uh, say that we, no, we included all of them and we don't understand and we understand the early solar systems. So I can say that we are relatively confident that we, are, we did the best that we can with the current scientific understanding that we have of solar system formation. Do you think we'll ever know for certain how the moon was formed? Do you think we'll ever have a definitive answer? The giant impact paradigm is the best, I think, that we have in the field, the best suggestion. You know, I think our, our work made another important progress in taking out one of the main challenges. Once you take this out, I'm even more confident about this giant impact hypothesis. In that sense, you can say it's quite definitive. It's always difficult to say something about, you know, to say really something definitive about something that happened four giga years ago or even more. That was Haggai Peretz taking one giant leap towards understanding the formation of the moon. The paper is at nature.com forward slash nature, where you'll also find a News and Views article about the study. And for the sake of completeness, now the moon is done, we'll be looking at the sun later in the show. Not directly, you understand, that would be dangerous. Before that, Adam Levy returns to give us the research highlights. Those who find long-haul flights tiring spare thought for a tiny bird called the black pole warbler. A study suggests it has the longest non-stop flight over water for a land bird, around 2,500 kilometres. It weighs only as much as a large coin, but every autumn this pocket dynamo leaves the forests of North America and spends three continuous days flapping over the Atlantic to South America. Researchers track the bird's journey with little GPS devices looped around one leg, providing the first solid evidence of its annual voyage. The papers in Biology Letters. Blind rats can learn to use magnetic information to get around. Researchers in Japan attached a magnetic sensor to rats' brains via two electrodes. The device detected which way the rat was facing and fed that information to their brain. With their new sixth sense in place, the magneto rats found their way around a maze almost as well as normally sighted rats. It goes to show how flexible the mammalian brain can be and implies that similar technology could expand human senses or compensate for lost vision. Check out Current Biology for more. What light through yonder window breaks? It is the east, and Juliet is the sun. That famous line is, of course, from Romeo and Juliet. Shakespeare's Romeo wasn't the first to use the sun as a symbol. Writers, artists and, of course, astronomers have long been obsessed with the burning ball of gas that both keeps us alive and threatens us from a distance. And the sun is poet Simon Baraclough's latest muse. 
He's just released a volume of poems called Sunspots, and he came into the Nature Podcast studio to read some extracts and tell me what prompted his work. Here's Simon. I think we all have a kind of innate fascination with the sun, but we managed to kind of switch it off and take this thing for granted. Although at the same time, I think we're aware of it subliminally all the time. It affects our mood, kind of day we're having constantly. And um, my previous book was called Neptune Blue, and um, it wasn't a book that was overtly about astronomy or physics, but it had a planet sequence in there. So I went through all the planets from Mercury down to poor old demoted Pluto, and the book is ready and is about to go off to the publisher. And I thought, you know, there's something nagging about it. There's something missing from this book. I don't know what it is. And then I realized that, you know, 98.9% of the solar system is actually the sun. And I wrote a poem from the sun's point of view, looking back over these planets I'd written about as if they were his or her or its kind of wayward and difficult children. And um, and something happened when I wrote that poem, a kind of switch went in my brain. And I instantly wrote about another 20 or 30 kind of sun-related poems. And, uh, and I realized I was in the grip of an obsession. You've interacted with a lot of um, solar physicists, scientists who are studying the sun, who are equally as obsessed as you yourself yes. have become. What were those interactions like? Well, very varied because, you know, people have very different characters. And just because you share one obsession or interest um, doesn't mean everyone's going to be the same. So, you know, I met, I met people very enthusiastic about one tiny aspect. Uh, they'd be maybe studying um, one flare from 2007 since then, you know, things like that. So, um, what, what and, and I learned a lot of interesting um, kind of new angles and theories um, from talking to them. But what I really loved was being in the company of people um, who, who kind of feel perfectly happy talking about this all-consuming obsession of theirs. How did you sort of unpack some of this really kind of dense? information that you were being presented with? I mean, were there, were there things that didn't lend themselves very well? Absolutely. There's, I, having spent more time with scientists doing at the kind of nitty gritty face of the data, uh, cleaning up data, doing the equations and things, I don't have access to that. I just, I just do not have that level of mathematics. And um, if maybe I spent the next 30 years, I might get somewhere near it. But, but there's, a certain, there's a certain way of looking at the universe that I simply don't have access to. Um, and that's very frustrating for me, but it's very, it's very enlightening. It's a good lesson because I think artists, we love to, we're very inspired by science. We're very inspired by some of the beautiful, um, almost mystical theories that you get, especially with things like quantum um, physics at the moment, particle physics. We kind of skim off the bits that we find metaphorically useful or moving or emotional. And we often forget, or it's easy to forget, or not even know that behind that there's this, there's this hardcore mathematical way of looking. Perhaps the best way to explore some of the, th the themes might be to get you to read us a couple of, of extracts from perhaps your favourites or some that are particularly um, where the science has impressed itself upon you. Okay, I'll read a poem which isn't from the point of view of the sun, but it's about the birth of the sun from quite early on. Could it have known as the disk accrued, as gravity drew all things to itself, as protoplanets formed in its skirts, came spinning like googlies from the back of the maker's hand, that it would have to oversee all this, the billion years of agony and bliss, the sun-kissed, fly-blown wounds of everything that exists. It's so nice to be read to. Yeah. And there's a poem, um, a rather rueful poem, about the sun kind of feeling, well, you know, they're not that interested in me anymore. The sun aware of its declining um, kind of importance. Since we no longer need it to be a god or that sort exactly. of... Exactly. And maybe we're more interested in, you know, intergalactic space now, um, adventuring further. They used to live in awe of me, the godhead, the fulcrum of perfection, 
the prime mover, the alma mater, the chief creator who could ripen grapes as an afterthought, bringing culture and savour and civilization. Now I'm just the boy, the marker that indicates the exit from the harbour, something to be got past, something of a feather in one's cap, something to be got under one's belt, to be pocketed, regarded perhaps as a useful pointer, a fond memento. Wonderful. Now, Neptune Blue, Sunspots, Simon, it's clear that you're as much of a geek as the rest of us. What's next for you? You know, I really don't know. Um, We're turning Sunspots into a show which will be touring in the autumn. So we're taking um, a small subset of the of the poems in here maybe 2025 and um, we've already made some films I've turned five of the poems into songs I'll be performing songs and even playing a bit of the trumpet on this thing and then the next project I don't I think I might like to do something away from astronomy and away from the distant edges of the galaxy but um, but I don't think I'll ever quite escape it nor would I really want to I think that's true of the universe mm, definitely yes. <laughs> we can't escape it can we no well we shall see maybe we will one day Thank you, Simon Barraclough, for coming in. Sunspots is published by Penned in the Margins and released on the 1st of April. Imagine folding up eight tennis courts and cramming them into just one gram of a material, creating an internal surface area of over 2,000 square metres. That's the trick that moths pull off. Their full name is metal organic frameworks and their lattice-like structure creates thousands of holes that can be used to trap guest molecules. A very useful property in chemistry and industry. Moths can be used for storage, catalysis to separate one gas from another and a host of other things. At the moment, most industries use inorganic materials called zeolites to do these jobs. But moths, which are lighter and more tunable, could one day replace zeolites. Researchers have been developing moths in the lab for the last 20 years. Now they're ready for commercialisation. Chemistry geek and journalist Mark Peplow has been following their development, and he's written a feature for this week's magazine. When he popped into the studio earlier this week, I asked him if moths are a big deal for chemistry. They, they really are a huge deal, actually. They're, um, according to some experts in the field, they're the fastest growing class of materials in chemistry today. Uh, there's more than 20,000 different types of these metal organic frameworks around, and most of them have been made in the past two decades. And what do they look like? Can you just describe a typical moth for us? Sure. So the clue's in the name. Uh, They are frameworks, molecular scaffolds made up of uh, metal containing nodes and they're connected by spars that are usually organic molecules. So they're they're based on a backbone of carbon atoms. They're sort of uh, pieces that you can plug together and build up this big network, which of course has spaces in between all the spars and the nodes. And it's those spaces that make moths really useful. So what kinds of things can you do with them? Well, the applications that researchers are looking into include uh, being able to trap things 
in those holes and then do things to molecules when they are trapped in those holes. What that means in practice is that you can um, store gases like methane, uh, which is a useful fuel, in there and then release it again when you need. People can do that with hydrogen as well. Or you can potentially separate mixtures of things. So you design a moth with particular pore sizes and properties so that it will grab onto one type of molecule but not another. So as you flow this mixture through, only one of them comes out the other side. Um, you could do that, for example, with gas from a fossil fuel power plant. And with the right moth, you can potentially grab hold of just the carbon dioxide in that waste gas stream and then remove that and bury it somewhere. So it's a potential form of carbon capture that you could then use to limit emissions into the atmosphere. And zeolites, the sort of moth equivalent that are currently used in many industries, do you think that moths are going to replace zeolites? It's going to be hard in many applications uh, because zeolites work incredibly well. Also, zeolites have been around for a long time. And if you think about the sorts of industries that they're used in and what they're used for, they're used for separation and catalysts as well. Uh, they're, they're firmly embedded in those industries. And when you, when you invest so much in facilities that rely on zeolites, you're not just going to shut them down and, and put some moths in their place. Um, you know, the, the sort of turnover for the infrastructure is on the decade timescale. Really intensive research into moths has only been over the past 20 years and they're only just now starting to be on the cusp of commercial applications. In fact, that's the reason why we did this feature now, because the chemical company BASF has said that it's now ready to launch a type of moth that goes in a fuel tank that can suck up methane, more methane than an empty tank of the same size could, and you can have that on a car and you can use that to drive a natural gas-fueled vehicle. And is this a job that zeolites do at the moment? That's actually not a, a job that zeolites do at the moment, basically because they they just don't have the uh, just the right mixture of qualities to be able to uh, hang on to the gas in just the right way and then release it again in just the right way. Um, zeolites also tend to be higher density. Their pores are smaller, uh, so they tend to be heavier as well. So for transportation applications, they're less good because you're carrying around more weight. So zeolites number in the hundreds, really. So you can see that moths are basically a lot more tunable. You you can fine-tune them to do exactly what you want. It really is because of the diversity of ways that you can connect together carbon atoms. It's the whole of organic chemistry, basically. It's the diversity of those linkers that enables you to make lots and lots of very slightly different moths with different properties. Sounds like these materials are ready for the commercial big time. Are they also useful tools for basic science? They are, and there's an application that's come slightly out of left field. Um, just a couple of years ago, a, a Japanese group showed that moths can soak up organic molecules, drugs or fragrance compounds or things like that, and hold them in place in their pores so that you can take an X-ray snapshot of their molecular structure. Now, a lot of organic molecules don't crystallise very well, so you can't use X-ray crystallography on them. This opens up the possibility of doing X-ray crystallography on a much wider range of organic molecules, and it really seems to be taking off. Now there's growing interest, and pharmaceutical companies are, are increasingly using this in the lab. Has it been um, exciting for you as a journalist covering the area to sort of see it develop to this point where it's now 
ready for commercialisation. Yeah, it, it has actually. I, I mean, uh, the certain wonder materials that get a great deal of press, carbon nanotubes, buckyballs, now the flavour of the month is graphene. Moffs, to me, is, is somewhat of an unsung hero of the materials world. People in chemistry are very aware that it's a, it's a hot and interesting topic that's moving very quickly. I, I always get the sense that people outside chemistry actually don't know a great deal about these sorts of materials. And they, they really are very versatile and showing a lot of promise. Thanks very much, Mark. You can read his feature online at nature.com forward slash news. More news now and Ewan Calloway joins me. Howdy. First off, a paleontological rejig. We love those. People have been going back through the cladistics of a very famous dinosaur. Basically, everyone's know-it-all paleo nerd friend loves to point out that Brontosaurus doesn't exist breaking hearts of five-year-olds everywhere. But it's true. This goes back to a, a period of paleontology called the Bone Wars in the 1870s when people were naming species so quickly. And this one guy, uh, he found uh, the bones of a giant dinosaur that was called Apatosaurus ajax in 1877. Two years later, found something he named Bontosaurus excelsus. And about 30 years later, some other scientists said, wait a minute, these are the same thing. They found another skeleton that looked like the, the two of them. And under the rules of scientific naming, the first name goes, ergo, Brontosaurus is toast. And this has only been cemented through further research. But Brontosaurus is back. You're excited. You look at your face. You look so excited. Uh, what, what has happened to bring Brontosaurus back from the dead? Careful study. These researchers wanted to basically look at as many bones of diplodocid specimens as they could. I think I'm saying that right. Uh, these are the the giant dinosaurs like. Uh, Brontosaurus used to be, Apatosaurus is, Diplodocus is. And they basically wanted to look at as many skeletons as they could and try and determine what's the variation within a species, what's the variation between species, and what's the variation between genuses, which is the, the next step up in the uh, taxonomic system. And Brontosaurus was initially a genus, so it was replaced with Apatosaurus. And basically, they kept compared as many fossils as they could on lots of anatomical traits and found that the specimen that was described as Brontosaurus was different enough from the specimen described as Apatosaurus that Brontosaurus merits its own genus. And therefore vindicating Othniel Marsh, who discovered these two things in the first place and named them both separately. This story sort of reminds me of another one we've talked about quite a lot on the podcast. Uh, Pluto, is it a dwarf planet? Is it a planet? You know, it gets relegated. People would like to bring it back. How does the field feel about the reinvigoration of Brontosaurus? You know, the press release for this came out on April Fool's Day. And being a, think, I think I'm a savvy science reporter. Uh, listeners may may uh, say otherwise. But I was like, mm, this has got to be, you know, this has got to be a joke. And then I opened the paper. It's 300 pages long. The press release is really well written, engaging. It's got a list of like a dozen outside experts who are available for comment. And I just started ringing people up and emailing them. And, and a lot of people were pretty enthusiastic about this. You know, they, they said that this is, so one, one scientist told me, Mike Benton, he told me that this is the best current view of diplodocids and, you know, thought that, that the decision to reinstate Brontosaurus was correct. Well, um, that story, of course, about bringing something back to life. Your second story, Ewan, that you wrote for the print magazine this week, this is about squashing something till it's 
till it's truly dead. This is about eradicating really expensive and awful diseases. Yeah, it's about a disease that goes by its French name, peste des petits ruminants, uh, plague of sheep and goats, sheep and goats plague, or, or PPR is what people call it. And it's devastating in uh, Africa, South Asia, you know, other, other poorer parts of the world. And it's especially devastating to the world's poorest people who overwhelmingly tend to rely on sheep and goats to, to make ends meet. It, it affects women and families especially hard because women often turn to sheep and goat farming to generate a bit of extra income to become self-dependent to send their kids to school. So. The news is is that last week, the two UN agencies that deal with agriculture and animal health announced a campaign to eradicate the virus that causes this this awful disease. And if they succeed, uh, we don't really know quite what the time frame is for this yet, but if they do succeed, um, it would join a very small select group of diseases that have been wiped off the face of the earth. Yeah, they put a goal of 2030, which is which is ambitious, but, but I think they make a case that it's doable. And you're right, it'll join a list of just a handful of other diseases that have been eradicated. Smallpox, most notably, was de- declared eradicated in 1980. Its last case was a few years before that. Uh, Rinderpest, which which is a, it's also known as cattle plague, it's closely related to uh, PPR, was eradic- declared eradicated in 2011. And polio stands you know, kind of on, on the brink of eradication. There have been only 21 cases recorded this year in, in two or three countries. Guinea worms uh, disease is a parasitic disease, is also kind of on the, on the brink of eradication. So yeah, we've got another you know, potentially fifth disease that could be wiped from the planet. But what's it going to take, though? I mean, they've, they've given themselves, as you said, an ambitious timeline of 2030. They want this disease to be gone. They want PPR to be wiped out. Uh, these are some of the world's, as you said, poorest communities. Just some of them are reasonably inaccessible. Uh, it's difficult to get the money together to, you know, to fund this kind of initiative. Like, what are, their, what are the steps they're proposing? They have to ramp up veterinary services dramatically in, in a lot of these very remote places. They've got a good vaccine. Researchers have now made this vaccine thermostable, meaning you don't need to keep it in a refrigerator for a long time. Uh, they've got good ways of diagnosing it. Um, some of them can be done pen side. So they've got a lot of tools, and it's just a matter of coming up with a plan, which they've now done, implementing it, bringing up veterinary services, and finding the p- funding to pay for it. I mean, they estimated between something like $4 billion and $9 billion, billion depending on how vaccines are discounted and, and other factors, but it's not going to be cheap. All right. Well, thanks, Ewan. And, and for more on small ruminants and very large dinosaurs, you can read both of those stories at nature.com slash news. And that's it from us. Next week, we celebrate the upcoming 25th anniversary of the Hubble Space Telescope. Meanwhile, Jeff Marsh has been off recording some great stuff for the next episode of Audiophile. Watch out for that in the next couple of weeks. It involves a parrot, but that's all I can tell you. And finally, we got Simon Barraclough to read us his favourite sun poem. Here he is to introduce it. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Charlotte Stoddart. One of the things I love about the sun and all stars, I think, is that you know, they're, when their time comes, they, they, they go with quite a fight. They do their very best to, to, to stay, you know, stay functional, um, which I think is quite inspiring to all of us when we face that. So this poem is um, it's a rewriting of a, of a glorious speech from Richard II, which is my favourite Shakespeare play. Of comfort no man speak. Let's talk of gravity, wormholes, nebulae. 
Make dust our photons, and with pathless rays shadow sorrow on the bosom of the earth. Let's choose executors and talk of wills, and yet not so. For what can we bequeath, save a grinding of celestial gears, spasms of affrighted gas, the bloating of a corpse on the battlefield of space, rifled by crabs of crushing conscience, or the weight of guilt I held at bay through this long middle age. For God's sake, let us sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the death of stars. How some have run upon their iron swords, like Romans carving naught into their breasts. Some haunted by the comets they have lured, by making eyes across the void to guide their suitors to a fiery death. Some drained of life's blood by vampire lover. Those conflagrating through their store with no regard for future days. Some crushed by failed ambition, turning tail and shrinking down to hide, dragging their vain light with them, so singular was their pride. Some lost in time, so distant from their prime, and now they fade, decline, all murdered. For within the hollow crown that rounds the mortal temples of a star keeps gravity his court, and there the antic squats, scoffing his state and sucking at his pomp, allowing him a flare, a little storm, to synthesize, be feared and kill with rays, infusing him with self and vain conceit, as if plasma which walls about our core were brass impregnable, and humoured thus, comes at the last, and with a little pin bores through photosphere wall, and farewell star.